Philip Melanchthon presents his greeting to the reader. After the confession of our princes had been publicly read, certain theologians and monks prepared a confutation of our writing. And when His Imperial Majesty had caused this also to be read in the assembly of the princes, he demanded of our princes that they should assent to this confutation. But as our princes had heard that many articles were disapproved, which they could not abandon without offense to conscience, they asked that a copy of the confutation be furnished them, that they might be able both to see what the adversaries condemned and to refute their arguments. And indeed, in a cause of such importance pertaining to religion and the instruction of consciences, they thought that the adversaries would produce their writing without any hesitation. But this our princes could not obtain unless on the most perilous conditions, which it was impossible for them to accept. Then, too, negotiations for peace were begun, in which it was apparent that our princes declined no burden, however grievous, that could be assumed without offense to conscience. But the adversaries obstinately demanded this, namely, that we should approve certain manifest abuses and errors. And as we could not do this, His Imperial Majesty again demanded that our princes should assent to the confutation. This our princes refused to do. For in a matter pertaining to religion, how could they assent to a writing into which they had not looked, especially as they had heard that some articles were condemned, in which it was impossible for them without grievous sin to approve the opinions of the adversaries? They had, however, commanded me and some others to prepare an apology of the confession, in which the reasons why we could not receive the confutation should be set forth to His Imperial Majesty, and the objections made by the adversaries should be refuted. For during the reading, some of us had taken down the chief points of the topics and arguments. This apology they finally offered to His Imperial Majesty that he might know that we were hindered by the greatest and most important reasons from approving the confutation. But his imperial majesty did not receive the offered writing. Afterwards, a certain decree was published, in which the adversaries boast that they have refuted our confession from the scriptures. You have now, therefore, reader, our apology, from which you will understand not only what the adversaries have judged for we have reported in good faith, but also that they have condemned several articles contrary to the manifest scripture of the Holy Ghost. So far are they from overthrowing our propositions by means of the scriptures. Now, although originally we drew up the apology by taking counsel with others, nevertheless, as it passed through the press, I have made some additions. Wherefore, I give my name so that no one can complain that the book has been published anonymously. It has always been my custom in these controversies to retain, so far as I was at all able, the form of the customarily received doctrine, in order that at some time concord could be reached the more readily. Nor indeed am I now departing far from this custom, although I could justly lead away the men of this age still farther from the opinions of the adversaries. But the adversaries are treating the case in such a way as to show that they are seeking neither truth nor concord, but to drain our blood. And now I have written with the greatest moderation possible, 
and if any expression appears too severe, I must say beforehand here that I am contending with the theologians and monks who wrote the confutation, and not with the emperor or the princes, whom I hold in due esteem. But I have recently seen the confutation, and have noticed how cunningly and slanderously it was written, so that on some points it could deceive even the cautious. Yet I have not discussed all their sophistries, for it would be an endless task. But I have comprised the chief arguments, that there might be among all nations a testimony concerning us that we hold the gospel of Christ correctly and in a pious way. Discord does not delight us, neither are we indifferent to our danger, for we readily understand the extent of it in such a bitterness of hatred, wherewith we see that the adversaries have been inflamed. But we cannot abandon truth that is manifest and necessary to the church. Wherefore, we believe that troubles and dangers for the glory of Christ and the good of the church should be endured, and we are confident that this, our fidelity to duty, is approved of God, and we hope that the judgment of posterity concerning us will be more just. For it is undeniable that many topics of Christian doctrine whose existence in the church is of the greatest moment have been brought to view by our theologians and explained, in reference to which we are not disposed here to recount under what sort of opinions and how dangerous they formerly lay covered in the writings of the monks, canonists, and sophistical theologians. We have the public testimonials of many good men who give God thanks for this greatest blessing, namely, that concerning many necessary topics it is taught better things than are read everywhere in the books of our adversaries. We shall commend our cause, therefore, to Christ, who sometime will judge these controversies, and we beseech him to look upon the afflicted and scattered churches and to bring them back to godly and perpetual concord. Article 1 of God The first article of our confession our adversaries approve, in which we declare that we believe and teach that there is one divine essence, undivided, etc., and yet that there are three distinct persons of the same divine essence and co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This article we have always taught and defended, and we believe that it has in Holy Scripture sure and firm testimonies that cannot be overthrown. And we constantly affirm that those thinking otherwise are outside the Church of Christ and are idolaters and insult God. Article 2 of Original Sin the second article of original sin, the adversaries approve, but in such a way that they nevertheless censure the definition of original sin, which we incidentally gave. Here immediately at the very threshold, his imperial majesty will discover that the writers of the confutation were deficient not only in judgment, but also in candor. For whereas we with a simple mind desired in passing to recount those things which original sin embraces, these men, by framing an invidious interpretation, artfully distort a proposition that has in it nothing which of itself is wrong. Thus they say, to be without the fear of God, to be without faith, is actual guilt. 
and therefore they deny that it is original guilt. It is quite evident that such subtleties have originated in the schools, not in the council of the emperor. But although this sophistry can be very easily refuted, yet in order that all good men may understand that we teach in, in this matter nothing that is absurd, we ask first of all that the German confession be examined. This will free us from the suspicion of novelty, for there it is written, It is further taught that since the fall of Adam, all men who are naturally born are conceived and born in sin, that is, that they all, from their mother's womb, are full of evil desire and inclination, and can have by nature no true fear of God, no true faith in God. This passage testifies that we deny to those propagated according to carnal nature not only the acts, but also the power or gifts of producing fear and trust in God. For we say that those thus born have concupiscence, and cannot produce true fear and trust in God. What is there here with which fault can be found? To good men, we think, indeed, that we have exculpated ourselves sufficiently. For in this sense, the Latin description denies to nature the power, that is, it denies the gifts and energy by which to produce fear and trust in God, and in adults, the acts, so that when we mention concupiscence, we understand not only the acts or fruits, but the constant inclination of the nature. But hereafter, we will show more fully that our description agrees with the usual and ancient definition. For we must first show our design in preferring to employ these words in this place. In their schools, the adversaries confess that the material, as they call it, of original sin is concupiscence. Wherefore, in framing the definition, this should not have been passed by, especially at this time, when some are philosophizing concerning it in a manner unbecoming teachers of religion. For some contend that original sin is not a depravity or corruption in the nature of man, but only servitude, or a condition of mortality, which those propagated from Adam bear because of the guilt of another, and without any depravity of their own. Besides, they add that no one is condemned to eternal death on account of original sin, just as those who are born of a bondwoman are slaves and bear this condition without any natural blemish, but because of the calamity of their mother. To show that this impious opinion is displeasing to us, we made mention of concupiscence, and with the best intention have termed and explained it as diseases, that the nature of man is born corrupt and full of faults. Nor indeed have we only made use of the term concupiscence, but we have also said that the fear of God and faith are wanting. This we have added with the following design. The scholastic teachers also, not sufficiently understanding the definition of original sin, which they have received from the fathers, extenuate the sin of origin. They contend concerning the fomes, or evil inclination, that it is a quality of body, and with their usual folly, ask whether this quality be derived from the contagion of the apple or from the breath of the serpent, and whether it be increased by remedies. With such questions, 
they have suppressed the main point. Therefore, when they speak of the sin of origin, they do not mention the more serious faults of human nature. To wit, ignorance of God, contempt for God, being destitute of fear and confidence in God, hatred of God's judgment, flight from God, when he judges, anger toward God, despair of grace, putting one's trust in present things, etc. These diseases, which are in the highest degree contrary to the law of God, the scholastics do not notice. Yea, to human nature they meanwhile ascribe unimpaired strength for loving God above all things, and for fulfilling God's commandments according to the substance of the acts. Nor do they see that they are saying things that are contrary to one another. For what else is the being able in one's own strength to love God above all things, and to fulfill his commandments, than to have original righteousness? But if human nature have such strength as to be able of itself to love God above all things, as the scholastics confidently affirm, what will original sin be? For what will there be need of the grace of Christ, if we can be justified by our own righteousness? For what will there be need of the Holy Ghost, if human strength can by itself love God above all things and fulfill God's commandments? Who does not see what preposterous thoughts our adversaries entertain? The lighter diseases in the nature of man they acknowledge, the more severe they do not acknowledge, and yet of these, Scripture everywhere admonishes us, and the prophets constantly complain, as the 13th Psalm and some other Psalms say, namely of carnal security, of the contempt of God, of hatred toward God, and of similar faults borne with us. But after the scholastics mingled with Christian doctrine, philosophy concerning the perfection of nature, and ascribed to the free will and the acts springing therefrom more than was sufficient, and taught that men are justified before God by philosophic or civil righteousness, which we also confess to be subject to reason and in a measure within our power, they could not see the inner uncleanness of the nature of men. For this cannot be judged except from the word of God, of which the scholastics in their discussions do not frequently treat. These were the reasons why, in the, in the description of original sin, we made mention of concupiscence also, and denied to man's natural strength the fear of God and trust in him. For we wish to indicate that original sin contains also these diseases, namely, ignorance of God, contempt for God, the being destitute of the fear of God and trust in him, inability to love God. These are the chief faults of human nature, conflicting especially with the first table of the Decalogue. Neither have we said anything new. The ancient definition understood aright expresses precisely the same thing when it says, original sin is the absence of original righteousness. But what is righteousness? Here, the scholastics wrangle about dialectic questions. They do not explain what original righteousness is. Now, in the scriptures, righteousness comprises not only the second table of the Decalogue, but the first also, which teaches concerning the fear of God, concerning faith, concerning the love of God. Therefore, original righteousness was to embrace not only an even temperament of the bodily qualities, but also these gifts, namely, 
a quite certain knowledge of God, fear of God, confidence in God, or certainly the rectitude and power to yield to these affections. And Scripture testifies to this when it says, Genesis 1.27, that man was fashioned in the image and likeness of God. What else is this than that there were embodied in man such wisdom and righteousness as apprehended God and in which God was reflected? That is, to man there were given the gifts of the knowledge of God, the fear of God, confidence in God, and the like. For thus Irenaeus and Ambrose interpret the likeness to God, the latter of whom not only says many things to this effect, but especially declares that soul is not therefore in the image of God, in which God is not at all times. And Paul shows in the epistles to the Ephesians 5.9 and Colossians 3.10 that the image of God is the knowledge of God, righteousness, and truth. Nor does Longobard fear to say that original righteousness is the very likeness to God which God implanted in man. We recount the opinions of the ancients, which in no way interfere with Augustine's interpretation of the image. Therefore, the ancient definition, when it says that sin is the lack of righteousness, not only denies obedience with respect to man's lower powers, but also denies the knowledge of God, confidence in God, the fear and love of God, or certainly the power to produce these affections. For even the theologians themselves teach in their schools that these are not produced without certain gifts and the aid of grace. In order that the matter may be understood, we term these very gifts the knowledge of God and fear and confidence in God. From these facts, it appears that the ancient definition says precisely the same thing that we say, denying fear and confidence toward God, to wit, not only the acts, but also the, power, the gifts and power to produce these acts. Of the same import is the definition which occurs in the writings of Augustine, who was accustomed to define original sin as concupiscence. For he means that when righteousness had been lost, concupiscence came in its place. For inasmuch as diseased nature cannot fear and love God and believe God, it seeks and loves carnal things. God's judgment it either condemns when at ease or hates when thoroughly terrified. Thus, Augustine includes both the defect and the vicious habit which has come in its place. Nor, indeed, is concupiscence only a corruption of the qualities of the body, but also in the higher powers, a vicious turning to carnal things. Nor do those persons see what they say who ascribe to man at the same time concupiscence that is not entirely destroyed by the Holy Ghost, and love to God above all things. We, therefore, have been right in expressing in our description of original sin both, namely, these defects. The not being able to believe God, the not being able to fear and love God, and likewise, the having concupiscence, which seeks carnal things contrary to God's word, that is, seeks not only the pleasure of the body, but also carnal wisdom and righteousness, and, contemning God, trusts in these as good things. Nor only the ancients, but also the more recent, at least the wiser ones among them, teach that original sin is at the same time truly these, namely, 
the defects which I have recounted, and concupiscence. For Thomas says thus, Original sin comprehends the loss of original righteousness, and with this an inordinate disposition of the parts of the soul, whence it is not pure loss but a corrupt habit. And Bonaventura, when the question is asked what is original sin, the correct answer is that it is immoderate concupiscence. The correct answer is also that it is want of the righteousness that is due. And in one of these replies, the other is included. The same is the opinion of Hugo, when he says that original sin is ignorance in the mind and concupiscence in the flesh. For he thereby indicates that when we are born, we bring with us ignorance of God, unbelief, distrust, contempt, and hatred of God. For when he mentions ignorance, he includes these. And these opinions also agree with Scripture. For Paul sometimes expressly calls it a defect, as 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. In another place, Romans 7.5, he calls it concupiscence, working in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. We could cite more passages relating to both parts, but in regard to a manifest fact, there is no need of testimonies. And the intelligent reader will readily be able to decide that to be without the fear of God and without faith are more than actual guilt, for they are abiding defects in our unrenewed nature. In reference to original sin, we therefore hold nothing differing either from Scripture or from the Church Catholic but cleanse from corruptions and restore to light the most important declarations of Scripture and of the Fathers that had been covered over by the sophistical controversies of modern theologians. For it is manifest from the subject itself that modern theologians have not noticed what the Fathers meant when they spake of defect. But the knowledge of original sin is necessary, for the magnitude of the grace of Christ cannot be understood unless our diseases be recognized. The entire righteousness of man is mere hypocrisy before God, unless we acknowledge that our heart is naturally destitute of love, fear, and confidence in God. For this reason, the prophet Jeremiah 31.19 says, After that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. Likewise, Psalms 116.11 I said in my haste, all men are liars, that is, not thinking aright concerning God. Here, our adversaries inveigh against Luther also, because he wrote that original sin remains after baptism. They add that this article was justly condemned by Leo X, but his imperial majesty will find on this point a manifest slander. For our adversaries know in what sense Luther intended this remark that original sin remains after baptism. He always wrote thus, namely, that baptism removes the guilt of, of original sin, although the material, as they call it, of the sin, that is concupiscence, remains. He also added in reference to the material that the Holy Ghost given through baptism begins to mortify the concupiscence, and creates new movements in man. In the same manner, Augustine also speaks, who says, 
sin is remitted in baptism, not in such a manner that it no longer exists, but so that it is not imputed. Here he confesses openly that sin exists, that, that is, that it remains, although it is not imputed. And this judgment was so agreeable to those who succeeded him that it was recited also in the decrees. Also against Julian, Augustine says, The law which is in the members has been annulled by spiritual regeneration and remains in the mortal flesh. It has been annulled because the guilt has been remitted in the sacrament, by which believers are born again. But it remains because it produces desires against which believers contend. Our adversaries know that Luther believes and teaches thus, and while they cannot reject the matter, they nevertheless pervert his words, in order by this artifice to crush an innocent man. But they contend that concupiscence is a penalty and not a sin. Luther maintains that it is a sin. It has been said above that Augustine defines original sin as concupiscence. If there be anything disadvantageous in this opinion, let them quarrel with Augustine. Besides, Paul says, Romans 7, 7, 23, I had not known lust, concupiscence, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Likewise, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. These testimonies can be overthrown by no sophistry, for they clearly call concupiscence sin, which nevertheless is not imputed to those who are in Christ, although by nature it is a matter worthy of death where it is not forgiven. Thus, beyond all controversies, the fathers believe. For Augustine, in a long discussion, refutes the opinion of those who thought that concupiscence in man is not a fault, but an adiophoron, as the color of the body or ill health is said to be an adiophoron. But if the adversaries will contend that the fomes, or evil inclination, is an adiophoron, not only many passages of Scripture, but simply the entire church will contradict them. For whoever dared to say that these matters, even though perfect agreement could not be attained, were adiaphora, namely, to doubt concerning God's wrath, concerning God's grace, concerning God's word, to be angry at the judgments of God, to be provoked because God does not at once deliver one from afflictions, to murmur because the wicked enjoy a better fortune than the good, to be urged on by wrath, lust, the desire for glory, wealth, etc. And yet, godly men acknowledge these in themselves, as appears in the Psalms and the Prophets. These notions were expressed among philosophers with respect to civil righteousness, and not with respect to God's judgment. With no greater prudence, they add also other notions, such as that nature is not evil. In its proper place, we do not censure this, but it is not right to twist it into an extenuation of original sin. 
And nevertheless, these notions are read in the works of scholastics, who inappropriately mingle philosophy or civil doctrine concerning ethics with the gospel. Nor were these matters only disputed in the schools, but, as is usually the case, were carried from the schools to the people. And these persuasions prevailed, and nourished confidence in human strength, and suppressed the knowledge of, of Christ's grace. Therefore, Luther, wishing to declare the magnitude of original sin and of human infirmity, taught that these remnants of original sin are not by their own nature adiaphora in man, but that for their non-imputation they need the grace of Christ, and likewise for their mortification the Holy Ghost. Although the scholastics extenuate both sin and punishment, when they teach that man by his own strength can fulfill the commandments of God, in Genesis, the punishment imposed on account of original sin is described otherwise. For there human nature is subjected not only to death and other bodily evils, but also to the kingdom of the devil. For there, Genesis 3.15, this fearful sentence is proclaimed, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. The defects and the concupiscence are punishments and sins. Death and other bodily evils and the dominion of the devil are properly punishments. For human nature has been delivered into slavery and is held captive by the devil, who infatuates it with wicked opinions and errors and impels it to sins of every kind. But just as the devil cannot be conquered except by the aid of Christ, so by our own strength we cannot free ourselves from this slavery. Even the history of the world shows how great is the power of the devil's kingdom. The world is full of blasphemies against God and of wicked opinions, and the devil keeps entangled in these bands those who are wise and righteous in the sight of the world. In other persons, grosser vices manifest themselves, but since Christ was given to us to remove both these sins and these punishments, and to destroy the kingdom of the devil, sin, and death, it will not be possible to recognize the benefits of Christ unless we understand our evils. For this reason, our preachers have diligently taught concerning these subjects, and have delivered nothing that is new, but have set forth holy scriptures and the judgments of the holy fathers. We think that this will satisfy His Imperial Majesty concerning the puerile and trivial sophistry with which the adversaries have perverted our article. For we know that we believe aright and in harmony with the Church Catholic of Christ. But if the adversaries will renew this controversy, there will be no want among us of those who will reply and defend the truth. For in this case our adversaries to a great extent do not understand what they say. They often speak what is contradictory, and neither explain correctly and logically that which is essential to original sin, nor what they call defects. But we have been unwilling at this place to examine their contests with any very great subtlety. We have thought it worthwhile only to recite, in customary and well-known words, the belief of the Holy Fathers, which we also follow. Article 3 of Christ The third article the adversaries approve, 
in which we confess that there are in Christ two natures, namely, a human nature, assumed by the Word into the unity of his person, and that the same Christ suffered and died to reconcile the Father to us, and that he was raised again to reign and to justify and sanctify believers, etc., according to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Article 4 of Justification In the 4th, 5th, 6th, and below in the 20th article, they condemn us for teaching that men obtain remission of sins not because of their own merits, but freely for Christ's sake through faith in Christ. For they condemn us both for denying that men obtain remission of sins because of their own merits, and for affirming that through faith men obtain remission of sins, and through faith in Christ are justified. But since in this controversy the chief topic of Christian doctrine is treated, which, understood aright, illumines and amplifies the honor of Christ, and brings necessary and most abundant consolation to devout consciences, we ask His Imperial Majesty to hear us with forbearance in regard to matters of such importance. For since the adversaries understand neither what the remission of sins, nor what faith, nor what grace, nor what righteousness is, they sadly corrupt this topic and obscure the glory and benefits of Christ and rob devout consciences of the consolations offered in Christ. But that we may strengthen the position of our confession and also remove the charges with the which the adversaries advanced against us, certain things are to be premised in the beginning, in order that the sources of both kinds of doctrine, that is, both that of our adversaries and our own, may be known. All Scripture ought to be distributed into these two principal topics, the law and the promises. For in some places it presents the law, and in others the promise concerning Christ, namely, either when it promises that Christ will come and offers for his sake the remission of sins, justification, and life eternal, or when in the gospel Christ himself, since he has appeared, promises the remission of sins, justification, and life eternal. Moreover, in this discussion, by law, we designate the Ten Commandments wherever they are read in the Scriptures. Of the ceremonies and judicial laws of Moses, we say nothing at present. Of these two parts, the adversaries select the law, because human reason naturally understands in some way the law, for it has the same judgment divinely written in the mind. And by, by the law, they seek the remission of sins and justification. Now the Decalogue requires not only outward civil works, which reason can in some way produce, but it also requires other things placed far above reason, namely, truly to fear God, truly to love God, truly to call upon God, truly to be convinced that God hears us, and to expect the aid of God in death and in all afflictions. Finally, it requires obedience to God in death and all afflictions, so that we may not flee from these or refuse them when God imposes them. Here, the scholastics, having followed the philosophers, teach only a righteousness of reason, namely, civil works. 
and fabricate besides that, without the Holy Ghost, reason can love God above all things. For as the human mind is at ease, and does not feel the wrath or judgment of God, it imagines it can imagine that it wishes to love God, that it wishes to do good for God's sake. In this manner they teach that men merit the remission of sins by doing what is in them. That is, if reason, grieving over sin, elicit an act of love to God, or for God's sake be active in that which is good. And because this opinion naturally flatters men, it has brought forth and multiplied in the church many services, monastic vows, abuses of the mass. And with this opinion the one has, in the course of time, devised this act of worship and observances, the other that. And in order that they might nourish and increase confidence in such works, they have affirmed that God necessarily gives grace to the one thus working, by the necessity not of constraint, but of immutability. In this opinion there are many great and pernicious errors which it would be tedious to enumerate. Let the discreet reader think only of this. If this be Christian righteousness, what difference is there between philosophy and the doctrine of Christ? If we merit the remission of sins by these illicit acts, of what benefit is Christ? If we can be justified by reason and the works of reason, wherefore, there, wherefore is there need of Christ or regeneration? And from these opinions the matter has now come to such a pass that many ridicule us, because we teach that an other than the philosophic righteousness must be sought after. We have heard that some, after setting aside the gospel, have, instead of a sermon, explained the ethics of Aristotle. Nor did such men err if those things are true which the adversaries defend. For Aristotle wrote concerning civil morals so learnedly that nothing further concerning this need be demanded. We see books extant in which certain sayings of Christ are compared with the sayings of Socrates, Zeno, and others, as though Christ had come for the purpose of delivering certain laws through which we might merit the remission of sins, as though we did not receive this gratuitously because of his merits. Therefore, if we here receive the doctrine of the adversaries, that by the works of reason we merit the remission of sins and justification, there will be no difference between philosophic, or certainly Pharisaic, and Christian righteousness. Although the adversaries, not to pass by Christ altogether, require a knowledge of the history regarding Christ, and ascribe to him that it is his merit that a habit is given us, or as they say, prima gratia, first grace, which they understand as a habit, inclining us the more readily to love God. Yet, what they ascribe to this habit is of little importance, because they imagine that the acts of the will are of the same kind before and after this habit. They imagine that the will can love God, but nevertheless this habit stimulates it to do the same more cheerfully. And they bid us first merit this habit by preceding merits. Then they bid us merit by the works of the law an increase of this habit and life eternal. Thus, they bury Christ, so that men may not avail themselves of him as a mediator, 
and believe that for his sake they freely receive remission of sins and reconciliation, but may dream that by their own fulfillment of the law they merit the remission of sins, and that by their own fulfillment of the law they are accounted righteous before God. While, nevertheless, the law is never satisfied, since reason does nothing except certain civil works, and in the meantime neither fears God nor truly believes that God cares for it. And although they speak of this habit, yet without the righteousness of faith, neither the love of God can exist in man, nor can it be understood what the love of God is. They're feigning a distinction between meritum congrui and meritum, meritum condigni, due merit and true complete merit, is only an artifice in order not to appear openly to, Pelag to Pelagianize. For if God necessarily gives grace for the meritum congrui, due merit, it is no longer meritum congrui, but meritum condigni, a true duty and complete merit. But they do not know what they are saying. After this habit of love, they imagine that man can acquire merit de condigno. And yet, they bid us doubt whether there be a habit present. How, therefore, do they know whether they acquire merit de congruo or de condigno, in full or half? But this matter was fabricated by idle men, who did not know how the remission of sins occurs and how, in the judgment of God and terrors of conscience, trust in works is driven out of us. Secure hypocrites always judge that they acquire merit de condigno, whether the habit be present or, or be not present, because men naturally trust in their own righteousness, but terrified consciences waver and hesitate, and then seek and accumulate other works in order to find rest. Such consciences never think that they acquire merit de condigno, and they rush into despair unless they hear, in, in addition to the doctrine of the law, the gospel concerning the gratuitous remission of sins and the righteousness of faith. Thus the adversaries teach nothing but the righteousness of reason, or certainly of the law, upon which they look just as the Jews upon the veiled face of Moses, insecure hypocrites who think that they satisfy the law, they, ex they excite presumption and empty confidence in works and contempt of the grace of Christ. On the contrary, they drive timid consciences to despair, which, laboring with doubt, never can experience what faith is and how efficacious it is. Thus, at last, they utterly despair. Now we think concerning the righteousness of reason thus. Namely, that God requires it, and that because of God's commandment, the honorable works with which the Decalogue commands must necessarily be performed, according to the passage Galatians 3.24, the law was our schoolmaster. Likewise, 1 Timothy 1.9, the law is made for the ungodly. For God wishes those who are carnal to be restrained by civil discipline and to maintain this. He has given laws letters, doctrine, magistrates, penalties. And this righteousness reason by its own strength can, to a certain extent, work, although it is often overcome by natural weakness and by the devil impelling it to manifest crimes. 
Now, although we cheerfully assign this righteousness of reason the praises that are due it, for this corrupt nature has no greater good, and Aristotle says aright, neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness, and God also honors it with bodily rewards, yet it ought not to be praised with reproach to Christ. For it is false that we merit the remission of sins by our works. False also is this, that men are accounted righteous before God because of the righteousness of reason. False also is this, that reason by its own strength is able to love God above all things and to fulfill God's law, namely truly to fear God, to be truly confident that God hears prayer, to be willing to obey God in death and other dispensations of God, not to covet what belongs to others, etc., although reason can work civil works. False also, and dishonoring Christ, is this, that men do not sin who, without grace, do the commandments of God. We have testimonies for this, our belief, not only from the Scriptures, but also from the Fathers. For in opposition to the Pelagians, Augustine contends at great length that grace is not given because of our merits. And in De Natura et Gratia, he says, If natural ability, through the free will, suffice both for learning to know how one ought to live and for living aright, then Christ has died in vain, then the offense of the cross is made void. Why may I not also here cry out, yea, I will cry out, and with Christian grief will chide them? Christ has become of no effect unto you whatsoever, of you who are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4, Confer 2.21, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Romans 10, 3, 4. And John 8, 36. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Therefore by reason we cannot be freed from sins and merit the remission of sins. And in John 3, 5, it is written, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But if it is necessary to be born again of the Holy Ghost, the righteousness of reason does not justify us before God and does not fulfill the law. Romans 3, 23. All have come short of the glory of God, are destitute of the wisdom and righteousness of God, which acknowledges and glorifies God. Likewise, Roman 8, Romans 8, 7 and 8. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. These testimonies are so manifest that to use the words of Augustine which he employed in this case, they do not need an acute understanding, but only an attentive hearer. If the carnal mind is enmity against God, the flesh certainly does not love God. If it cannot be subject to the law of God, it cannot love God. 
If the carnal mind is enmity against God, the flesh sins even when we do external civil works. If it cannot be subject to the law of God, it certainly sins even when, according to human judgment, it possesses deeds that are excellent and worthy of praise. The adversaries consider only the precepts of the second table, which contain civil righteousness that reason understands. Content with this, they think that they satisfy the law of God. In the meantime, they do not see the first table which commands that we love God, that we declare as certain that God is angry with sin, that we truly fear God, that, that we declare as certain that God hears prayer. But the human heart, without the Holy Ghost, either in security despises God's judgment or in punishment flees from and hates God when he judges. Therefore, it does not obey the first table. Since, therefore, contempt of God and doubt concerning the word of God and concerning the threats and promises inhere in human nature, men truly sin, even when, without the Holy Ghost, they do virtuous works, because they do them with a wicked heart. According to Romans 14.23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. For such persons perform their works with contempt of God, just as Epicurus does not believe that God cares for him or that he is regarded or heard by God. This contempt vitiates work seemingly virtuous because God judges the heart. Lastly, it was very foolish for the adversaries to write that men who are under eternal wrath merit the remission of sins by an act of love, which springs from their mind, since it is impossible to love God, unless the remission of sins be apprehended first by faith. For the heart, truly feeling that God is angry, cannot love God, unless he be shown to have been reconciled. As long as he terrifies us, and seems to cast us into eternal death, human nature is not able to take courage, so as to love a wrathful, judging, and punishing God. It is easy for idle men to feign such dreams concerning love, as that a person guilty of mortal sin can love God above all things, because they do not feel what the wrath or judgment of God is. But in agony of conscience and in conflicts, conscience experiences the emptiness of these philosophical speculations. Paul says, Romans 4.15, The law worketh wrath. He does not say that by the law men merit the remission of sins, for the law always accuses and terrifies consciences. Therefore, it does not justify, because conscience terrified by the law flees from the judgment of God. Therefore, they err who trust that by the law, by their own works, they merit the remission of sins. It is sufficient for us to have said these things concerning the righteousness of reason or of the law, which the adversaries teach. For after a while, when we will declare our belief concerning the righteousness of faith, the subject itself will compel us to adduce more testimonies, which also will be of service in overthrowing the errors of the adversaries, which we have thus far reviewed. Because, therefore, men by their own strength cannot fulfill the law of God, and all are under sin and subject to eternal wrath and death, on this account, we cannot be freed by the law from sin and be justified. But the promise of the remission of sins and of justification has been given us for Christ's sake, 
who was given for us in order that he might make satisfaction for the sins of the world and has been appointed as the mediator and propitiator. And this promise has not the condition of our merits, but freely offers the remission of sins and justification, as Paul says, Romans 11.6, If it be of works, then is it no more grace. And in another place, Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, that is, the remission of sins is freely offered. Nor does reconciliation depend on our merits. Because if the remission of sins were to, were to depend on, upon our merits, and reconciliation were from the law, it would be useless. For as we do not fulfill the law, it would also follow that we would never obtain the promise of reconciliation. Thus Paul reasons, Romans 4.14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. For if the promise would require the condition of our merits and the law, which we never fulfill, it would follow that the promise would be useless. But, since justification is obtained through the free promise, it follows that we cannot justify ourselves. Otherwise, wherefore would there be need to promise? For since the promise cannot be received except by faith, the gospel which is properly the promise of the remission of sins and of justification for Christ's sake proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ, which the law does not teach. Nor is this the righteousness of the law. For the law requires of us our works and our perfection. But the gospel freely offers, for Christ's sake, to us, who have been vanquished by sin and death, reconciliation, which is received not by works, but by faith alone. This faith brings to God not confidence in one's own merits, but only confidence in the promise, or the mercy promised in Christ. This special faith, therefore, by which an individual believes that for Christ's sake his sins are remitted him, and that for Christ's sake God is reconciled and propitious, obtains remission of sins and justifies us. And because in repentance, that is, in terrors, it comforts and encourages hearts, it regenerates us and brings the Holy Ghost, that then we may be able to fulfill God's law, namely to love God, truly to fear God, truly to be confident that God hears prayer, and to obey God in all afflictions, it mortifies conscience, uh, concupiscence, etc. Thus, because faith, which freely receives the remission of sins, sets Christ the mediator and propitiator against God's wrath, it does not present our merits or our love. This faith is the true knowledge of Christ and avails itself of the benefits of Christ and regenerates hearts and precedes the fulfilling of the law. And of this faith, not a syllable exists in the doctrine of our adversaries. Hence, we find fault with the adversaries equally because they teach only the righteousness of the law and because they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel, which proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. What is justifying faith? The adversaries feign that faith is only a knowledge of the history and therefore teach that it can coexist with mortal sin. Hence, they say nothing concerning faith, by which Paul so frequently says that men are justified, 
because those who are accounted righteous before God do not live in mortal sin. But that faith which justifies is not merely a knowledge of history, but it is to assent to the promise of God, in which for Christ's sake the remission of sins and justification are freely offered. And that no one may suppose that it is mere knowledge, we will add further, it is to wish and to receive the offered promise of the remission of sins and of justification. And the difference between this faith and the righteousness of the law can be easily discerned. Faith is the latreia, divine service, which receives the benefits offered by God. The righteousness of the law is the latreia, divine service, which offers to God our merits. By faith, God wishes to be worshipped in this way, that we receive from Him those things which He promises and offers. Now that faith signifies not only a knowledge of the history, but such faith as a sense to the promise. Paul plainly testifies when he says Romans 4.16, Therefore it is a faith, to the end the promise might be sure. For he judges that the promise cannot be received unless by faith. Wherefore he puts them together as things that belong to one another, and connects promises and faith. Although it will be easy to decide what faith is if we consider the creed, where this article certainly stands, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, it is not enough to believe that Christ was born, suffered, was raised again, unless we add also this article, which is the purpose of the history, the forgiveness of sins. To this article, the rest must be referred, namely, that for Christ's sake and not for the sake of our merits, forgiveness of sins is given us. For what need was there that Christ was given for our sins, if for our sins our merits can make satisfaction? As often, therefore, as we speak of justifying faith, we must keep in mind that these three objects concur, the promise, and that too, gratuitous, and the merits of Christ, as the price and propitiation. The promise is received by faith, the gratuitous excludes our merits, and signifies that the benefit is offered only through mercy. The merits of Christ are the price, because there must be a certain propitiation for our sins. Scripture frequently implores mercy, and the Holy Fathers often say that we are saved by mercy. As often, therefore, as mention is made of mercy, we must keep in mind that faith is there required, which receives the promise of mercy. And again, as, as often as we speak of faith, we wish an object to be understood, namely the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not on the ground that it is a work in itself worthy, but only because it receives the promised mercy. And throughout the prophets and the Psalms, this worship, this latreia, is highly praised, although the law does not teach the gratuitous remission of sins. But the fathers knew the promise concerning Christ, that God, for Christ's sake, wished to remit sins. Therefore, since they understood that Christ would be the price for our sins, they knew that our works are not a price for so great a matter. Accordingly, they received gratuitous mercy and remission of sins by faith, just as the saints in the New Testament. 
Here belong those frequent repetitions concerning mercy and faith in the Psalms and the Prophets, as this, Psalm 133. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who, could, who shall stand? Here David confesses his sins and does not recount his merits. He adds, But there is forgiveness with thee. Here he comforts himself by his trust in God's mercy, and he cites the promise, My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope, that is, because thou hast promised the remission of sins, I am sustained by this thy promise. Therefore the fathers also were justified, not by the law, but by the promise and faith. And it is amazing that the adversaries extenuate faith to such a degree, although they see that it is everywhere praised as an eminent service, as in Psalm 50, 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee. Thus God wishes himself to be known, thus he wishes himself to be worshipped, that from him we receive benefits, and receive them too because of his mercy, and not because of our merits. This is the richest consolation in all afflictions, and such consolations the adversaries abolish when they extenuate and disparage faith, and teach only that by means of works and merits men treat with God. That faith in Christ justifies. In the first place, lest anyone may think that we speak concerning an idle knowledge of the history, we must declare how faith is obtained. Afterward, we will show both that it justified, justifies and how this ought to be understood, and we will explain the objection of the adversaries. Christ, in the last chapter of Luke 24:47, commands that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. For the gospel convicts all men that they are under sin, that they all are subject to eternal wrath and death, and offers, for Christ's sake, remission of sin and justification, which is received by faith. The preaching of repentance, which accuses us, terrifies consciences with true and grave terrors. In these, hearts ought to again to receive consolation. This happens if they believe the promise of Christ, that for his sake we have remission of sins. This faith, encouraging and consoling in these fears, receives remission of sins, justifies, and quickens. For this consolation is a new and spiritual life. These things are plain and clear, and can be understood by the pious, and have testimonies of the church. The adversaries nowhere can say how the Holy Ghost is given. They imagine that the sacraments confer the Holy Ghost ex opere operato, without a good emotion in the recipient, as though indeed the gift of the Holy Ghost were an idle matter. But since we speak of such faith as is not an idle thought, but of that which liberates from death and produces a new life in hearts, and is the work of the Holy Ghost, this does not coexist with mortal sin, but as long as it is present produces good fruits, after we will say, or as we will say after a while. For concerning the conversion of the wicked, or concerning the mode of regeneration, what can be said that is more simple and more clear? Let them, from so great an array of writers, adduce a single commentary upon the sententiae that speaks of the mode of regeneration. When they speak of the habit of love, they imagine that men merit it through works, 
and they do not teach that it is received through the word, precisely as also the Anabaptists teach at this time. But God cannot be treated with, God cannot be apprehended, except through the word. Accordingly, justification occurs through the word. Just as St. Paul says, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Likewise, Romans 10.17, faith cometh by hearing. And proof can be derived even from this that faith justifies, because if justification occurs only through the word, and the word is apprehended only by faith, it follows that faith justifies. But there are other and more important reasons. We have said these things thus far in order that we might show the mode of regeneration and that the nature of faith concerning we speak might be understood. Now we will show that faith justifies. Here, in the first place, readers must be admonished of this, that just as it is necessary to maintain this sentence, Christ is mediator, so is it necessary to defend that faith justifies. For how will Christ be mediator if in justification we do not use him as mediator? If we do not hold that for his sake we are accounted righteous. But to believe is to trust in the merits of Christ. That for his sake God certainly wishes to be reconciled with us. Likewise, just as we ought to maintain that apart from the law, the promise of Christ is necessary, so also is it needful to maintain that faith justifies. For the law cannot be performed unless the Holy Ghost first be received. It is therefore needful to maintain that the promise of Christ is necessary. But this cannot be received except by faith. Therefore, those who deny that faith justifies teach nothing but the law, both Christ and the gospel, being set aside. But when it is said that faith justifies, some perhaps understand of it the beginning, namely, that faith is the beginning of justification or preparation for justification, so that not faith itself is that through which we are accepted by God, but the works which follow. And they dream accordingly that faith is highly praised because it is the beginning. For great is the importance of the beginning, as they commonly say, the beginning is half of everything. Just as if one would say that grammar makes the teachers of all arts, because it prepares for other arts. Although in fact, it is his own art that renders everyone an artist. We do not believe thus concerning faith, but we maintain this that properly and truly, by faith itself, we are for Christ's sake accounted righteous or are acceptable to God. And because to be justified means that out of unjust men, just men are made or born again, it means also that they are pronounced or accounted just. For Scripture speaks in both ways. Accordingly, we wish first to show this, that faith alone makes of an unjust a just man, that is, receives remission of sins. The particle alone offends some, although even Paul says, Romans 3.28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Again, Ephesians 2.8, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Again, Romans 3.24, being justified freely. If the exclusive alone displeases, let them remove from Paul also the exclusives freely, not of works, it is the gift, etc. For these also are exclusives. It is, however, the opinion of merit that we exclude. We do not exclude the word or sacraments, as the adversaries falsely charge us. For we have said above that faith is conceived from the word, and we honor the ministry of the word in the highest degree. Love also and works must follow faith. Wherefore they are not excluded so as not to follow, but confidence in the merit of love or works is excluded in justification. And this we will clearly show. That we obtain remission of sins by faith alone in Christ. We think that even the adversaries acknowledge that in justification the remission of sins is necessary first. For we are all under sin. Wherefore we reason thus. To attain the remission of sins is to be justified according to Psalm 32.1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. By faith alone in Christ, not through love, not because of love or works, do we acquire the remission of sins, although love follows faith. Therefore, by faith alone we are justified, understanding justification as the making of a righteous man out of an unrighteous, or that he be regenerated. It will thus become easy to declare the minor premise, that we obtain forgiveness of sins by faith, not by love, if we know how the remission of sins occurs. The adversaries with great indifference dispute whether the remission of sins and the infusion of grace are the same change. Being idle men, they did not know what to answer. In the remission of sins, the terrors of sin and of eternal death in the heart must be overcome, as Paul testifies 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, sin terrifies consciences. This occurs through the law, which shows the wrath of God against sin, but we gain the victory through Christ. How? By faith. When we comfort ourselves by confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Thus, therefore, we prove the minor proposition. The wrath of God cannot be appeased if we set against it our own works, because Christ has been set forth as a propitiator, so that for his sake the Father may become reconciled to us. But Christ is not apprehended as a mediator except by faith. Therefore, by faith alone we obtain remission of sins when we comfort our hearts with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Likewise, Paul, Romans 5.2, says, By whom also we have access, and adds, By faith. Thus, therefore, we are reconciled to the Father and receive remission of sins when we are comforted with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. The adversaries regard Christ as mediator and propitiator for this reason, namely that he has merited the habit of love. They do not urge us to use him now as mediator, but, as though Christ were altogether buried, they imagine that we have access through our own works, 
and through these merit this habit, and afterwards, by this love, come to God. Is not this to bury Christ altogether, and to take away the entire doctrine of faith? Paul, on the contrary, teaches that we have access, that is, reconciliation, through Christ. And to show how this occurs, he adds that we have access by faith. By faith, therefore, for Christ's sake, we receive remission of sins. We cannot set our own love and our own works over against God's wrath. Secondly, it is certain that sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ as propitiator, Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Moreover, Paul adds, through faith. Therefore, this propitiator thus benefits us when by faith we apprehend the mercy promised in him and set it against the wrath and judgment of God. And to the same effect it is written, Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, etc., let us therefore come with confidence. For the apostle bids us come to God, not with confidence in our own merits, but with confidence in Christ as a high priest. Therefore, he requires faith. Thirdly, Peter in Acts 10.43 says, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. How could this be said more clearly? We receive remission of sins, he says, through his name, that is, for his sake, Therefore, not for the sake of our merits, not for the sake of our contrition, attrition, love, worship, works, and he adds, when we believe in him. Therefore, he requires faith, for we cannot apprehend the name of Christ except by faith. Besides, he cites the agreement of all the prophets. This is truly to cite the authority of the church. But of this topic, we will speak again after a while when treating of repentance. Fourthly, remission of sins is something promised for Christ's sake. Therefore, it cannot be received except by faith alone. For a promise cannot be received except by faith alone. Romans 4.16 Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end that the promise might be, might be sure. As though he were to say, if the matter were to depend on our merits, the promise would be uncertain and useless, because we could never determine when we would have sufficient merit. And this, experienced consciences can easily understand. Accordingly, Paul says, Galatians 3.22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. He takes merit away from us because he says that all are guilty and concluded under sin. Then he adds that the promise, namely of the remission of sins and of justification, is given, and adds how the promise can be received, namely, by faith. And this reasoning, derived from the nature of a promise, is the chief reason reasoning in Paul and is often repeated. Nor can anything be devised or imagined whereby this argument of Paul can be overthrown. Wherefore, let not good minds suffer themselves to be forced from the conviction that we receive remission of sins for Christ's sake only through faith, 
In this they have sure and firm consolation against the terrors of sin and against eternal death and against all the gates of hell. But since we receive remission of sins and the Holy Ghost by faith alone, faith alone justifies, because those reconciled are accounted righteous and children of God, not on account of their own purity, but through mercy for Christ's sake, provided only they by faith apprehend this mercy. Accordingly, Scripture testifies that by faith we are accounted righteous, Romans 3.26. We, therefore, will add testimonies which clearly declare that faith is that very righteousness by which we are accounted righteous before God, namely, not because it is a work that is in itself worthy, but because it receives the promise by which God has promised that for, which, for Christ's sake he wishes to be propitious to those believing in him, or because he knows that Christ of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 In the Epistle to the Romans, Paul discusses this topic especially and declares that when we believe that God for Christ's sake is reconciled to us, we are justified freely by faith. And this proposition, which contains the statement of the entire discussion, he maintains in the third chapter, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, Romans 3.28. Here, the adversaries interpret that this refers to Levitical ceremonies. But Paul speaks not only of the ceremonies, but of the whole law, for he quotes afterward, 7.7, from the Decalogue, Thou shalt not covet. And if moral works would merit the remission of sins and justification, there would also be no need of Christ and the promise, and all that Paul speaks of the promise would be overthrown. He would also have been wrong in writing to the Ephesians 2.8, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Paul likewise refers to Abraham and David, Romans 4, uh, 4, 1 and 6. But they had the command of God concerning circumcision. Therefore, if any works justified, these works must also have justified at the time that they had a command. But Augustine teaches correctly that Paul speaks of the entire law as he discusses at length in his book of the Spirit and Letter, where he says, finally, these matters, therefore having been considered and treated, according to the ability that the Lord has thought worthy to give us, we infer that man is not justified by the precepts of a good life, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and lest we may think that the sentence that faith justifies fell from Paul inconsiderately, he fortifies and confirms this by a long discussion in the fourth chapter to the Romans, and afterwards repeats it in all his epistles. Thus he says, Romans 4, 4 and 5, To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Here he clearly says that faith itself is imputed for righteousness. Faith, therefore, is that thing which God declares to be righteousness, and he adds that it is imputed freely and says that it could not be imputed freely if it were due on account of works. Wherefore, he excludes also the merit of moral works. For if justification before God were due to these, faith would not be imputed for righteousness without works. 
And afterwards, Romans 4, 9, for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Romans 5, 1 says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is, we have consciences that are tranquil and joyful before God. Romans 10, 10, with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. Here he declares that faith is the righteousness of the heart. Galatians 2.16, We have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. John 1.12, To them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John three fourteen and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Likewise, three seventeen. For God set not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Acts 13, 38-39 Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. How could the office of Christ and justification be declared more clearly? The law, he says, did not justify. Therefore Christ was given, that we may believe that for his sake we are justified. He plainly denies justification to the law. Hence, for Christ's sake, we are accounted righteous when we believe that God, for his sake, has been reconciled to us. Acts 4, 11, and 12, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But the name of Christ is apprehended only by faith. Therefore, by confidence in the name of Christ, and not by confidence in our works, we are saved. For the name here signifies the cause which is mentioned, because of which salvation is attained. And to call upon the name of Christ is to trust in the name of Christ as the cause or price because of which we are saved. Acts 15.9 Purifying their hearts by faith. Wherefore that faith of which the apostles speak is not idle knowledge, but a reality, receiving the Holy Ghost and justifying us. Habakkuk 2.4 The just shall live by his faith. Here he says, first, that men are just by faith, by which they believe that God is propitious, and he adds that the same faith quickens, because this faith produces in the heart peace and joy and eternal life. Isaiah 53.11 By his knowledge he shall justify many. But what is the knowledge of Christ, unless to know the benefits of Christ, the promises which by the gospel he has scattered broadcast in the world? And to know these benefits is properly and truly to believe in Christ, to believe that that which God has promised for Christ's sake, he will certainly fulfill. But Scripture is full of such testimonies, since in some places 
It presents the law, and in others the promises concerning Christ and the remission of sins and the free acceptance of the sinner for Christ's sake. Here and there, among the fathers, similar testimonies are extant. For Ambrose says in his letter to a certain Irenaeus, Moreover, the world was subject to him by the law for the reason that, according to the command of the law, all are indicted, and yet, by the works of the law, no one is justified. That is, because by the law sin is perceived, but guilt is not discharged. The law, which made all sinners, seemed to have done injury. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he forgave to all sin which no one could avoid, and by the shedding of his own blood blotted out the handwriting which was against us. This is what he says in Romans 5.20. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Because after the whole world became subject, he took away the sin of the whole world, as John testified, saying John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And on this account let no one boast of works, because no one is justified by his deeds. But he who is righteous has it given him, because he was justified after the laver of baptism. Faith, therefore, is that which frees through the blood of Christ, because he is blessed, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32.1 These are the words of Ambrose which clearly favor our doctrine, he denies justification to works and ascribes to faith that it sets us free through the blood of Christ. Let all the sententiarists who are adorned with magnificent titles be collected into one heap. For some are called angelic, others subtle, and others irrefragable, that is, doctors who cannot err. When all these have been read and reread, they will not be of, of as much aid for understanding Paul as is this one passage of Ambrose. To the same effect, Augustine writes many things against the Pelagians. In Of the Spirit and the Letter, he says, the righteousness of the law, namely, that he who has fulfilled it shall live in it, is set forth for this reason, that when anyone has recognized his infirmity, he may attain and work the same and live in it, conciliating the justifier not by his own strength, nor by the letter of the law itself, which cannot be done, but by faith. Except in a justified man there is no right work wherein he who does it may live. But justification is obtained by faith. Here, he clearly says that the justifier is conciliated by faith and that justification is obtained by faith. And a little after, by the law we fear God, by faith we hope in God. But to those fearing punishment, grace is hidden, and the soul laboring, etc. Under this fear betakes itself by faith to God's mercy, in order that he may give what he commands. Here, he teaches that by the law hearts are terrified, but by faith they receive consolation. He also teaches us to apprehend by faith mercy before we attempt to fulfill the law. We will shortly cite certain other passages. Truly, it is amazing that the adversaries are in no way moved by so many passages of Scripture which clearly ascribe justification to faith and indeed deny it to works. Do they think that the same is repeated so often for no purpose? Do they think that these words fell inconsiderately from the Holy Ghost? 
but they have also devised sophistry whereby they elude them. They say that these passages of Scripture which speak of faith ought to be received as referring to a fides formata. That is, they do not ascribe justification to faith except on account of love. Yea, they do not in any way ascribe justification to faith, but only to love, because they dream that faith can coexist with mortal sin. Whither does this tend, unless that they again abolish the promise and return to the law? If faith receive the remission of sins on account of love, the remission of sins will always be uncertain, because we never love as much as we ought. Yea, we do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that the remission of sins has been granted us. Thus the adversaries, while they require in the remission of sins and justification confidence in one's own love, altogether abolish the gospel concerning the free remission of sins, although at the same time they neither render this love nor understand it, unless they believe that the remission of sins is freely received. We also say that love ought to follow faith, as Paul also says, Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And yet we must not think on that account that by confidence in this love or on account of this love we receive the remission of sins and reconciliation, just as we do not receive the remission of sins because of other works that follow. But the remission of sins is received by faith alone, and indeed by faith properly so called because the promise cannot be received except by faith. But faith properly so called is that which assents to the promise. Of this faith Scripture speaks, and because it receives the remission of sins and reconciles us to God, by this faith we are, like Abraham, accounted righteous for Christ's sake before we love and do the works of the law, although love necessarily follows. Nor, indeed, is this faith an idle knowledge, neither can it coexist with mortal sin, but it is a work of the Holy Ghost, whereby we are freed from death, and terrified minds are encouraged and quickened. And because this faith alone receives the remission of sins, and renders us acceptable to God, and brings the Holy Ghost, it could be more correctly called gratia gratum faciens, grace rendering one pleasing to God than an effect following, namely, love. Thus far, in order that the subject might be made quite clear, we have shown with sufficient fullness, both from testimonies of Scripture and arguments derived from Scripture, that by faith alone we obtain the remission of sins for Christ's sake, and that by faith alone we are justified, that is, of unrighteous men made righteous or regenerated. But how necessary the knowledge of this faith is can be easily judged, because in this alone the office of Christ is recognized. By this alone we receive the benefits of Christ. This alone brings sure and firm consolation to pious minds. And in the church it is necessary that there should be the doctrine from which the pious may receive the sure hope of salvation. For the adversaries give men bad advice when they bid them doubt whether they obtain remission of sins. For how will such persons sustain themselves in death who have heard nothing of this faith, and think that they ought to doubt whether they obtain the remission of sins? 
Besides, it is necessary that in the church of Christ the gospel be retained. That is the promise that for Christ's sake sins are freely remitted. Those who teach nothing of this faith concerning which we speak altogether abolish the gospel. But the scholastics mention not even a word concerning this faith. Our adversaries follow them and reject this faith. Nor do they see that by rejecting this faith, they abolish the entire promise concerning the free remission of sins and the righteousness of Christ.